Philippians 1, 11 through 18. Uh, filled with the, I'll start in 12, I think. <clears throat> I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, yes, and I will rejoice. Good morning, everybody. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. And as they go, I just, I, I love that quote from Jim Elliott. He is no fool who will give up what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. And, and I like the way they put that in that song that we sang this morning. That, um, it, it, you don't look like a fool if you're doing that. So give up what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose. With that in mind, let's pray. Lord, um, we really do want to gain Christ, to gain what we can't lose, to gain our position in you. And Lord, we do that only by trusting. And so, Lord, help us to trust you more. And Father, we pray for uh, our dear Kremrise. Uh, they should be arriving in New Jersey uh, today. Thank you for safely getting them across the United States. We pray for uh, Ramey's health, uh, for Jen's new job, for their move-in, and for their integration into Calvary TV Free. Lord, would you bless all of that, and we anticipate uh, great ministry to come from uh, what, what you're doing by moving them out there. So bless them as they, uh, they start their new position, and we do dearly miss them, Lord. Uh, Father, I want to pray also for Joanne Sadler, um, who's uh, got some pain uh, more than normal, and Lord, I just pray that you would grant her some relief give her strength. Lord, help her to be able to get out of the house and, and uh, come and worship with us. Uh, we miss our sister in Christ, and we pray that you would uh, heal her and, and strengthen her for uh, what you have left for her, the, the things that she's got for you, or you have for her to do uh, in, uh, in this world. And uh, Father, we also want to pray again for the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, that you would be with the families of the 11 service members who lost their lives in a bombing. Uh, Father, for the Afghanis who, uh, who perished also, that their families, if they don't know Christ, might come to uh, find hope in Jesus through their, their tragic loss. And Lord, we just pray for the uh, people Afghani of Afghanistan. Uh, Father, would you um, turn this horrible situation somehow to their good? that uh, perhaps through the suffering, through the, the anguish, Lord, you could spark revival in that nation. Um, we pray for um, the church there, that you would keep her strong and faithful. And um, Lord, see, we, we seek to see your glory come from what 
right now looks like just an unimaginably horrible uh, um, event in that country. Lord, would you show your glory through this? And Father, now as we turn to your word, would you open our hearts and minds to see what it is that you have for us this morning to help us to see and understand. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. We recently heard a uh, TED talk from uh, Malcolm Gladwell about spaghetti sauce. And I want to share that with you this morning because I thought it was really helpful for the sermon. Spaghetti sauce, yeah. So uh, what happened is in the 1960s, they discovered aspartamine, that artificial sweetener. And Pepsi decided that they wanted to use that and make Diet Pepsi. And they wanted to have this really great tasting Diet Pepsi. So they hired a, a gentleman named Howard Moskowitz to do the test and figure out what percentage of aspartamine should they put in their soda, their diet soda to make it taste the best. And so they hired him and he came and he, what he did is he made up about five or six different percentages and then brought in a taste testing group and they tasted it and they were to rate each one and what they thought. And what he was anticipating at the end of this would be a chart that would have this nice bell curve to it that would say the most people like this particular 1%, um, whereas you know fewer people like the other ones. When he got the data back, it was all over the place. It was a mess. It, it didn't show anything. And so Pepsi fired him. He said, thank you very much. And somebody else came along and said, you know, 10% sounds right. Let's do that. So that was what happened. What happened with Howard, though, is as he was reflecting on that experience, he said, we're asking the wrong question. We're not ask, we shouldn't be asking what is the one perfect Pepsi recipe. We should be making multiple Pepsis, multiple diet Pepsis. And then that will help us determine this. So eventually he got hired by Campbell's Soup um, because at the time, ragu was the spaghetti sauce in America. And Campbell's had introduced Prego and they could not break into that market. Ragu had, had it nailed. Now the problem was on any measurable scale, Prego was superior. And one of the great tests was they would have two bowls of spaghetti noodles and you'd pour the ragu on and you'd pour the prego on. The ragu would sink right to the bottom, Oop, at the bottom of the thing. The prego would kind of seep through and fill it in. It, it had more spices, it was more consistent. And so it should have been the top dog. So they bring Howard and they say, fix this. We wanna, we wanna win the spaghetti sauce market. So what Howard did is he went into the kitchen at Campbell's and he said, um, make up, I think it was, what, 45 varieties of their spaghetti sauce. So he didn't, you know, just have this small sampling. He made up 45 different varieties of it. Some were more sweet. Some were more garlicky. Some were more tomatoey. Some were less smooth. Some were more sour. Just all these different varieties. He took the whole thing on the road and went to a handful of different cities and he said, what do you think? Which one do you like? Now, it sounds like he's repeating the Pepsi thing, but the way he analyzed the data was very different. Instead of saying, looking for that bell curve, instead what he did is he, after he got all the data in, he, he said, let's clump these together. And there are the smooth ones, and there are the chunky ones, and then there are the, the spice ones. Which one did people like more? And it turns out that what people liked was chunky. They wanted more chunky spaghetti sauce. Now, if you had asked them in a survey, if you said, what do you like about spaghetti sauce, the only spaghetti sauce they really knew was ragu. And they would have probably gone with the characteristics that are in ragu. But this was a way to find out 
what they wanted, even though if they didn't know what they wanted, by presenting them more options. So Ragu introduced super chunky spaghetti sauce and dominated the market. They just took over. So it worked. Now, who cares about spaghetti sauce? <laughs> I mean, well, you know, if, if you're getting hungry, maybe you do, but what does it have to do with the book of Philippians? Well, here's the thing, is when you keep asking the question from the perspective that you started out with, you tend to get the same answer. It's not until you look at the data in a different way and say, what is really going on here that it can help you see that? So when we turn to the book of Philippians, we're moving into this section now where Paul is going to talk about his own personal experience. He gives them his update, what's been happening with me. And what we see here is what's most important to Paul is the very first thing he talks about. It, it's what's on his mind, on his heart. And as we look at it this morning, if we're looking at it with the same um, metrics, if we're trying to measure it the same way, we could come up with the wrong answer to what is really most important to Paul. And so I just want to warn us before we get here, we we're going we're gonna to listen to what Paul has to say, and at the end we'll, at, we'll back up and say, now what is the most important thing to him at this point? What is it that is really gripping him? So the verse starts, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me really served to advance the gospel. And, and in that is the most important thing. Right out of the bat, the gospel is advancing. That's the most important thing. Now, just as a quick aside, um, he mentions the word brothers. And that does not mean male siblings. It doesn't mean only the men in the church. And I can prove that from the book of Philippians because at the beginning of chapter 4, what he says is, uh, he's talking about uh, uh, his brothers, and the first two people he mentions is, um, oh, I'm sorry, it's, it's right here. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iota and Syntyche. So he mentions brothers, and the first two people he, men he talks about are women. So that, that word brothers takes on a more technical term. We would use the word maybe Christians. Um, uh, I, I want you to know, Christians, how that my imprisonment has served to, to advance the gospel. So just a little technical note there. But this is what's most important to him, is that the gospel is moving forward. And so he, he begins by saying that his imprisonment didn't shut it down. It didn't end it. It doesn't depend simply on Paul being free to preach the gospel. The gospel doesn't work that way. And so he says in verse 13, his, it, it, the, his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So his being arrested didn't shut it down. It actually served in a way to broaden it, reach it into places he couldn't have reached otherwise. Now that phrase, the way 13 is translated is a little difficult. And I think this is one of those places that the Bible did something that is poetically beautiful. Because you could take it one of two ways, and both are true. So let me show you what I mean. The Christian Standard Bible says that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. And that's a little closer to the Greek, because it's not for Christ in the Greek. It is in Christ. So the CSB, again, says that my imprison imprisonment is because I am in Christ. The New American Standard says, my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ, with the cause of in italics, meaning it's not in the Greek. And the King James puts it pretty much literally, that my chains are in Christ, that my, bond, my being bound is in Christ. So the two ways that you can understand this are that, uh, like the ESV says, they know that his imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, he's been arrested 
for preaching the gospel. He is now in jail for telling people who Jesus is. And now the imperial guard know about Jesus because they've, they said, well, why are you here? Well, here's why I'm here. And so the word got out. The other way is, the other way to interpret that is his bonds are in Christ. So what he could be saying is, yes, I am in prison right now, but I am bound to Jesus Christ. I am secured to him. And so no matter what happens, I can't be removed from Christ. And the Imperial Guard could see that because they would see these Philippians coming from a great distance to come and check on their friend. The, these Greeks coming to visit a Jew and find out how he's doing. They send uh, Epaphroditus to bring money to him from Greece. And it, it just shows this is his bond in Christ. He's, he's bound into a family of believers. And so I think either translation works. Either one is, is going to be correct. So his bonds are in Christ so that the whole imperial guard and the rest um, know that my imprisonment is for Christ. The imperial guard, the word is praetorium. And when praetorium was originally used, it would be the, the tent that the military commander lived in when they were on a military campaign. That was the praetorium. But it eventually became a, a broader term. It meant the guard that would guard that tent. And now, in, by this time, it, it's talking about the royal guard that would be at the, the palace of Caesar. So the whole praetorium. And I don't think it's talking about the building. I think it's got to be talking about the people because the very next thing it says is, and the rest. Well, it's not the rest of the buildings. The buildings don't hear about the gospel. But what's happened is, as Paul's under house arrest, word has gotten into the imperial guard that he's arrested because he's a Christian. And they're beginning to understand who Christ is. Now, that does not mean that the entire Imperial Guard was converted and were now Christians. There's no historical record that indicates that. If that had happened, that would have caused a big uproar because now they wouldn't be worshiping the right gods. They wouldn't be doing these other things. Paul is grateful because the gospel is advancing in that they have heard. They've heard who, that, who this Jesus is, why Paul would be arrested for that. Now, and who is and to the rest? Who's the rest? The rest of what? Well, it could be the rest of the Roman legion, but I don't, I don't know. Maybe there's a hint at the end of the book. Because at the end of Philippians in 4.22, Paul says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So maybe and the rest is the rest of these Roman bigwigs, these Romans important people. So the gospel, because Paul has been arrested, the gospel has now spread not just to the places that he's visited, but now it's gone to the Imperial Guard and even into Caesar's own household. That's where the gospel has gone. And apparently in Caesar's household, um, it's taken root. And some people are believers because they're saints now. The saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So this is the, the idea that the advance of the gospel is it's being pronounced, it's being sent out. So what is the gospel? What are we talking about when we talk about the gospel? The gospel is a simple story with profound implications. The gospel is that we are alienated from God, that we cannot be right with him on our own, that our hearts are so bent we will never be right with God that way, that even if we were to straighten everything out and be perfect from this day forward, all that sin behind us lingers, and what's going to be done about that? And the gospel is that God himself took care of that. That the eternally begotten Son of God came in human form, 
lived a perfect life. He never had that bent nature. He never lived in a selfish way. He always lived for God. That he was executed, not because he'd done anything wrong, but because he was executed. And he took our sins on us at that point. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And when he died, he, he paid the penalty that we were due, the penalty that we owed because we are sinners. And then he was raised again from the dead. He, he, he didn't stay in the grave. He was raised, as Paul says, for our justification. Our justification is that righteous life that he lived is credited to you. God doesn't just look at you and go, oh, Jesus died for your sins, you're innocent. He looks at you and he says, you're actively righteous because of what my son has done, because you have trusted in my son. That's what justification is, and we're justified by faith. So the gospel is, if you will trust this simple story, you will be right with God. All you have to do is say, I can't do it. Jesus has done it for me, and that's my only hope in this life and the next. That's the gospel. So the gospel can't be stopped because you arrest Paul. It, it can't be held back. It's not some talisman. It's not some holy relic that you have to go to. It's not a temple that you have to go visit. That's been all put away. The gospel is the simple message that God has done something to save you, and you, all you need to do is trust him. So when Paul's arrested and put in jail, when he's, he's taken to Caesarea for two years, when he's hauled off to Rome for another couple of years, that doesn't stop the spread of the gospel because he can tell people this simple story. We can tell people that simple story. There's, there's nothing that can stop it. it it's a, a force that will not yield, ever. Now, it's important, we'll, we'll see this in a minute, what that looks like, what that means what our role in that is, but the truth of it is we are, we are to preach the gospel. And what is the result of Paul preaching the gospel even while he's in jail, even while he's in prison? What's the result of having the gospel reach the imperial guard and even into Caesar's household? Verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The result of it is the believers look and go, that gospel can't be stopped. Look at what has happened. Paul has been arrested. You would figure this would shut down his ministry. It has just redirected it in a different way. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak. So when you see an unstoppable message being unstoppable, not because of circumstances or persons, it can breed confidence in you. Now notice they became bold not because they took another evangelism or apologetics course. They didn't become bold because they took a public speaking course and now they're more confident to tell people. They became confident because they saw the power of the gospel. Now Paul is in Rome. He, he is under arrest in Rome. And when we looked at the book of Romans, we said that he wrote that on the way to Rome. He was probably heading to Jerusalem where he'd be arrested. In the book of Romans, he talks about the gospel, the power of the gospel. And in 116, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. So our hope, our, our, our confidence comes not in that the gospel is our power to salvation. It comes not because it's the, power, the possibility of God for salvation, 
we have confidence to preach the gospel because we look at it, we say, that is the power of God. This simple message that he's given us to tell, this story that he's told us to repeat, that is the power of God. Do you want to wield God's power in this world? Would you like to exercise his power in this world? He lets you do that. Preach the gospel. It is the power of God. And it's the power of God to save. And you don't then have to join a church or write a check or whatever it is. It is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. All you have to do is say, I trust that message. That's why these, these believers could look and say, wow, that, look at what's happening with the gospel. And that would stir confidence in them. And when he says most of the brothers, he's probably talking about the Romans because that's where he's at. He's saying, look, the Romans now are beginning to preach the gospel. They're beginning to live like that. I'm going to tell you a story, and I checked with Lisa, and it's okay if I share this. Um, when she went to Egypt, she got sick as a dog. They must have ate something or drank some water or something, but she was just miserable sick. And she was going to the house of these Coptic Christians. Now, Coptic is the Egyptian kind of version of the Roman Catholic Church kind of thing. It's, it's the Egyptian church, and they're very more like Catholic. The Coptics had heard part of the gospel, but not the fullness of it. And so what Lisa was doing was she would be taken to somebody's house. They had an interpreter, and as sick as she was, as horrible as she felt, she would just sit and tell the story. So she tells the story of they gave her a bottle of soda, and she was nervous and feeling horrible, and she kept fiddling with it and getting the cap stuck back on. And the house owner had to keep coming back over and popping the cap off. And then she dropped it and it rolled. And you, you couldn't do a worse gospel presentation. And she's sick and she just kind of mumbles it out. And it didn't catch. And so she tells it again. And pretty soon you saw the lights come on. And these people were like, you have to come and tell my neighbor. And they're dragging this poor sick woman across the hall to go tell somebody else. It was not Lisa's presentation. Now, I've seen her give the gospel in, in wonderful ways, in very winsome and warm ways. This was not her shining moment in gospel presentations. It's not Lisa's power for salvation. It is God's power for salvation to those who believe. And so she did her best, given the situation, and God blessed it anyway. That's what can stir confidence is when you see the gospel actually take hold, not because the most polished speaker in the room gave it, but because it does that. So the brothers are more bold to speak the word. They're, they're, they're not as hesitant to share with somebody else. Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you something that's really important to me. They're more willing to do that. The next verse complicates that a little bit. <laughs> It's a little bit confusing, and it complicates that, that issue, but we've got to take a look at it. Uh, verse 15 and s through 17, Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So the brothers are more bold to speak, and some of them preach from uh, envy and rivalry, but some from goodwill. So there are people who are doing something here. He says, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So what he's saying is these brothers who are now emboldened are emboldened for different reasons. Some of them are emboldened for love. 
Maybe love for Paul. Maybe love for their fellow man. Maybe love for God. Maybe all of that. They're emboldened to do that, and they do it from goodwill. They, they want to share the gospel. And so that's what they do. They go out and they just share. But there are other people. Some of these other brothers, they do it from envy and rivalry. They're envious. They look at Paul and they say, look at what you're doing. You're sharing this message, and, and people hear you, and you're very good at preaching it, but now you're under arrest, and so we can sneak in and we can get some of that too. And they think this is somehow going to afflict Paul. This is going to make him angry that, you know, like he owns the gospel and they're going to sneak in and steal it from him or something. These folks are really just getting it wrong. The former preached Christ out of selfish ambition. This is going to make me look like the super evangelist. This is going to make me look like I'm really top dog. Paul, you know, too bad, buddy. You're, you're out now. I'm taking over. But Paul's response is he doesn't care. That's not the most important thing, is why you do it. He's most happy to see that Christ is being preached, whatever the motivation, whatever is going on. That's the thing. So in verse 18, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth. In pretense. Those people who are trying to make Paul angry by preaching the gospel, they're pretending to care. And Paul says, even in pretense, the power of God to salvation works. God is able to draw straight lines with crooked pencils. And so even out of pretense, so he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That makes him the most happy. So whatever the motivation was, Paul's glad because he knows Jesus is being preached. So that means... Imagine those, those people who are doing it from pretense, who are trying to make themselves look good, and they go out and preach the gospel anyway. Does that give you a little bit of hope that if I bungle this, if I don't really like the person I'm preaching to, but I'm going to do it anyway, does that give you any help to say, all right, I'm not doing it from selfish ambition and, and pretense and envy and strife, but I'm a little uncomfortable doing it. Does that give you any hope to say, God could use that anyway. If he could use something that extreme, could he use your imperfections? Could he have the gospel land in somebody's heart be, even though you don't do it perfectly or from the most pure motives or any of that? That's what emboldened the, the Christians. So here's the question then. I want to go back and ask that first question again. What did Paul mean that his imprisonment led to the advancement of the gospel? What are we thinking the only way that the gospel advances is? When we, when we say, do, do, is the gospel advancing here in the city of Lancaster? Is it advancing in the, in the Antelope Valley? How would you answer that? What would you use to determine if the gospel is advancing in the Antelope Valley? I think our default setting is bodies and chairs. If, we, if the gospel is advancing, then that means more people are coming to church. More people are in the seats. I don't want to dismiss that. I would love to see this place fill. I, I really would. That is not the metric that we use to determine is the gospel advancing. That's, that's not the spaghetti sauce. If, if we think in those terms, then the unit of measure of success is how full our churches are on any given Sunday. And boy, you'll see plenty of, of surveys that determine that. Um, 
we're missing what Paul thinks is the advancement of the gospel. What's most important to him is that Christ is preached. Even from selfish ambition, even from pretense, Christ is preached. So do you want to see the gospel advance in the Antelope Valley? If it advances and God blesses it, we'll have people in chairs, and that would be wonderful. But that's not our responsibility. As a matter of fact, if you look at Paul's writings, if you look at his whole history in the New Testament, he never once talks about numbers. Never. He never mentions it. He, he defends himself against the claims of these super apostles in 2 Corinthians 11. And this is that part where he's like, I'm insane for saying this, but, and he keeps going. When he does that, he never includes how many people he had converted. It, it is not part of his equation. The number of converse, uh, conversions is not how Paul determines his success. He determines his success by, I have faithfully executed my role. I have preached the gospel. So at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 1.16, when he's doing that famous thing about some say I'm of Paul and some say I'm of Apollos, he, he doesn't turn to that and even he can't even remember how many people he's baptized. It, it doesn't come to mind. In, in 16 and uh, 17, he says, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. So he's not filling out at the end of his week, here's my, my baptismal report, how many people did I baptize? As a matter of fact, in verse 17, he goes on, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says, that's not my job. My role is not to save your soul. My role is to faithfully preach the gospel. I came to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom. Paul could be as sick as a dog, keeps snapping the cat back on the bottle in Egypt. And as long as he's preaching the gospel, he says that's success. That is the advancement of the gospel. He's not counting those things. So when we think about the advancement of the gospel, we could be making that same spaghetti sauce mistake. We could be thinking only in this one category. There's the, what, is, what is a successful church? Well, a successful church is one that is, uh, has regular attendance of 250 or 500 or 1,000. That's a successful church. That's not the biblical measure of success. Because what we've been tasked to do is go preach the gospel, tell the story, say the words, and God is the one who will save. He will bring people in. You get that from Matthew chapter 9. Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to make the harvest bigger. To do No, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. The Lord of the harvest has done it. He's not hiring horticulturalists to improve the size of the harvest. That's in his control. What he's doing is he's hiring laborers, and he says, now go out and bring that harvest in. And so that's what we're called to do. That's our measure of faithfulness, is are we sharing the gospel? And we let the growth be on God's part. That's his responsibility. So the way I would approach it in our church is I would say, go out and faithfully share your faith. Share the gospel. And if somebody says, wow, that's wonderful, I'm going to Central Christian. Hail and amen, brother. If that's, if that's a better fit for you, then you go there. Um, 
If you want to hang out with me, though, I go to Trinity, and you know, we're not too bad either. But I mean, th- we have to have a broader view of the kingdom of God than just our little church. And if we do, I don't believe that God will let us suffer because of that. I don't think he'll let this church just disappear because we're more concerned about his kingdom. I get the impression he would be more delighted in us if we were more concerned about his kingdom. So if somebody has a church that they went, now, there are boundaries on this. There are borders. If they go, I'm going back to the Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall, please don't. (laughs) You will not grow in Christ there. But other evangelical churches, you know, it would be okay. Um, Now, I happen to know a really good church that meets in a warehouse behind a junkyard that is really great people, and maybe you could come here too. So that, that's the, the measure of success. Don't fall for the idea that this church is not successful because we have never gotten over 200 people. We got there a couple of times. We bumped into that number and just weren't able to sustain it. Um, that's not the measure of success. That is God's business. He will bring as many people here as he desires to be here, and he will trust us with his harvest. We're just the barn that the harvest comes into, and he assigns where that harvest goes to. So don't get hung up on spaghetti sauce. Don't think the only thing we have is ragu. That's the definition of spaghetti sauce. When we look at the evangelical landscape and we see churches that are 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, and we think, oh, that's a successful church, those are freaks. They are abnormal. The normal church, I just read the statistics recently, the normal evangelical church in America is below 200 people. The most amount of Christians are in churches of 200 and below. So even though there may be a church of a couple of thousand, that's not where most Christians go. That's not what most churches are like. So don't get hung up on ragu. Prego is better. It it can be much better if you can think outside that box. That's why I thought that illustration was helpful, is we have to step back and say, uh, am I hung up on this one particular paradigm? And Paul is shaking that out here. He's, he's really rattling our cage by saying, the gospel is advancing because I'm in jail. You can't stop the gospel by putting Paul in jail. Remember the story in Philippi? What happened when he got thrown in jail there? An earthquake and the Philippian jailer got saved. He gets thrown in jail in Rome. What happens? Some people in Caesar's house have become believers. The whole imperial guard has heard the gospel. You can't stop it. It doesn't work that way. And Paul delights in the fact that people are preaching the gospel from generous hearts and from selfish hearts, trying to endear themselves. Or they th- the part that blows my mind is they think that's going to hurt Paul. They have totally misread Paul. They think that he is so jealous of his ability to preach the gospel that anybody else doing it is going to wound him. And so they try that weapon. Well, we'll we'll afflict you. We'll go preach the gospel, Paul. And Paul's like, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. That was all I wanted. They, They can't hurt him. So this should give us, hopefully, this kind of approach will give us confidence to speak the word more boldly. It's not your ability to do it. It's not in how clever you can be. It's not because they ask a really tough technical question and you don't have an answer that, that it's going to fail. There is a place for apologetics. Apologetics is not sharing, it's, it's not the advance of the gospel. That's not what apologetics is. Apologetics clears the space, 
clears the floor so that you can then share the gospel. I can't trust the Bible because, well, let me show you why the Bible is trustworthy. Is that the gospel? Nope. That then says, now let me tell you what the gospel says about Jesus Christ and you can share. Public speaking, being able to speak eloquently is great. Did Paul rely on that? No, I don't rely on words, eloquent words of wisdom. It's the foolish message that somebody took your place. That's how this works. And so let that build some confidence in you. This is what Paul's heart was, and this is what Paul wants the Philippians to know. And the thing is, this letter is inspired by God. So this is what God wants you to know is first importance. Number one, top thing, is not politics, it's not morality, it's not building design or choirs or drums in the service or whatever the particular thing is, the first and most important thing is preach the gospel. That's how it advances. This gospel will be preached throughout the whole world and then the end will come. Notice notice Jesus didn't say there, this gospel will be preached throughout the whole world and a certain number of people are going to be saved and they're going to come to your church and then the end will come. That's not your business. Don't worry about that. Preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. That's, that's our role. It's simple. So don't focus on the prego, or the, uh, the prego, the regu. That's, that's not the only way to do it. Now, having said all that, I just want one more little thing before we finish. There is nothing wrong with a big church, necessarily. There are good big churches. And the difference between a small church and a big church is the number of people. But as I was driving home from school yesterday, I drove past Central, and I saw that big, huge campus, and I thought, how much of their budget goes to maintaining that huge building? They, they have a larger budget. They make more money. They have more people. But a bigger portion goes to their facilities. They need that because they've got more people. They've got to have the facilities. For us, we're a little bit more flexible. Less of our budget goes to our building. We have fewer people. So one of the things we're doing is this care portal thing where we're trying to connect with people in need and help them. And one of the guys that I talk to all the time goes to Central. He's their person for Central. And so he's like, hey, we're, we're going to go deliver some stuff. You want to grab some people and go? Well, they've got enough folks that they can do that. We don't. And so I can't flex and say, yeah, we'll do that. You know, I'll be over there in 10 minutes with 40 people. It's just they have advantages and we have advantages. So I don't want to diss large churches just because they're large, okay? Uh, and praise small churches just because they're small. It doesn't mean that we're more faithful than Valley Bible because they're 1,200 and we're only 40. That, that's not the measurement. Do you see how the, the measurement, the people can creep in on both sides of that equation? We're more, success, we're more uh, faithful because we have more, less people. Well, they're more successful because they have more, and, and Paul and Jesus are saying, doesn't matter. Don't worry about that. I want the gospel to advance, go out and preach it. Whether it's 4,000 or 40, do that. So I just wanted to clear that up. I don't, I don't want to have you leave and think big church bad, <laughs> small church good. No, it's, that's not the point. That's the exact opposite of the point. So let's be faithful with the gospel. That's his encouragement to us today. Let's pray. Lord, you are the Lord of the harvest. Um, as Paul said at the beginning of 1 uh, Corinthians, Paul planted, Apollos watered, and the Lord gave the growth. God gives the growth. Lord, you are in charge of the harvest. 
you make it as large or as small as you desire. And your task to us, your call to us, is to go out and labor in the field. You will provide the, the income. You will provide the growth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make Trinity, but also all the churches in the valley that are evangelical, that have a high view of Scripture, that believe in salvation by personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Lord, would you make us all faithful to share the word? And Lord, would you advance the gospel through our work here in the Antelope Valley? And having prayed all of that, Jesus, would you bring many people in? Would you fill the seats in the Antelope Valley so that churches have to get more buildings because you have brought revival, because the harvest of the Antelope Valley is so huge. That would be our desire because it would bring you the most glory to see more people worship you. Lord, we ask these things in your name and for the sake of the advance of the gospel. Amen.